Lord, we thank you so much for that, for that promise and that truth. That through every storm that we go through, God, that you are with us. That every challenge that is presented, that you carry us. And we thank you, God, for your provision, for your grace. Lord, we pray for this team and this trip that is going to Russia, that you would radically bless it. That you would provide, that you would open up doors that no one could shut, and that you would just do a tremendous thing both in and through them. And we just look forward to hearing the great reports. And tonight we pray that you'd be glorified in our time in the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, if you would, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. If you need a Bible, go ahead and lift up your hand, and one of our ushers will give you one to use tonight. Isaiah chapter 40. How many of you were not here last week, last Wednesday? Those of you that weren't here, I just want to give you really quick, what we're doing here on Wednesday nights now is an overview of the books of the prophets. And so we began in the book of Isaiah last week. We're actually spending two weeks on this particular book. And uh, each week um, that we get together, we're going to do usually one week of overview, and then we're going to come back the following week, which will be next week, and we're going to look at Christ in that prophetic book, what that prophet had to say about the Messiah. So that'll be our study next time. But tonight we're going to pick up in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, have you ever noticed that you can have two different reactions to reading the Bible? Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, it's like you're reading a passage and it can be radically convicting. You know, it's just really, really just tugging on your heart and convicting you. And then you can read another chapter and it's super comforting. And it's like you just feel so comforted and so refreshed. And the reason for that typically has to do with the conditions of our hearts. When we find a passage or an area where we find ourselves challenged or convicted, it usually has to do with an area of our hearts that we need to deal with. That's something that God is wanting to change or to be taken care of. And when we find ourselves in a, a area of scripture that really comforts us, it's oftentimes because it, it has to do with what we're going through at that particular time. That maybe we're going through really, you know, some heavy difficulty or trial and just that particular passage, just God uses it to comfort our hearts. It's been said that the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. And the idea there is that it's really contingent upon the substance. And the Word of God kind of works the same way, that its effect is contingent upon our hearts. Now, what's interesting about the Bible is when you can read the same author and experience both of those things, where one chapter with the same guy writing, one chapter is you're being convicted, and the next chapter you're being comforted. And that's exactly the way that we see the book of Isaiah being divinely laid out by the Lord. We noted last time that Isaiah has been called the Bible in miniature. Because the Bible has 66 books and Isaiah has 66 chapters. 
In the, the Bible, the Old Testament is made up of 39 chapters and the New Testament 27. And what's interesting about the, the book of Isaiah is it divides that way. Chapters 1 through 39 kind of give a picture of, of just the whole of the Old Testament. And the theme of it is that of condemnation. A lot of woes in chapters 1 through 39. But then when you get to chapters 40 through 66, which kind of represent maybe what we would call the New Testament portion of the Bible, the theme of those chapters is consolation and comfort. Now, having said that, we noted last time that in chapters 1 through 39, we saw over and over again these hints or this glimmer of hope in the midst of all the woes that Isaiah was giving out, this glimmer of hope that there was a Messiah who was coming. In fact, in chapters 7 through 9, he tells us his name, that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's really consistent with what we see throughout the whole of the Old Testament, that, that yes, God is laying out, there's lots of judgment that the Lord is laying out because the people of Israel are um, breaking his laws. But in the midst of judgment that is pronounced, there's this this prophecies, these prophecies of this coming Messiah that would come, this coming Savior that would come to the world. Now, Isaiah writes with, from a threefold perspective. As you read through his book, you'll see that sometimes he's looking at the past. And in that, he's really warning Judah to not follow the example of their northern neighbors, Israel. The Israel, the nation of Israel, um, the, the, the ten tribes that made up the, the nation of Israel that was up in the north, they got radically into idolatry, and because of that, they were carried into captivity by the Assyrians. Isaiah was ministering down in Judah. And he's trying to get the the people of Judah to look and and see. Look what God did. Look what happened. Look how they were punished. Don't follow in their footsteps. And so he he writes oftentimes from that perspective. That's what a lot of uh, chapters 1 through 39 was about. But then there's also the present situation. Or really, he writes concerning their current trouble and their need to repent of the sin that they are in. And then he writes from a future perspective, and he talks a lot about the coming Savior and the restoration that is going to come. And so his book really kind of carries this theme of a now and not yet type of aspect to it. It's almost like a father who's sitting in his living room, and the present is right before him. There's his son's toys. There's his daughter's shoes. And everything about his life in the present is just right there. But he's sitting there flipping through a photo album. And as he's flipping through the photo album, he's looking at his kids when they were born and and when they were toddlers. And he's reminiscing of, of the past, if you would. But as he's doing that, he starts to imagine and think about the the future. And college and his kids going off to college and weddings that are going to happen. And, and that's sort of how the, the book of Isaiah combines those three perspectives as he writes. Now, why was the book written? Let me give you three uh, purposes. First of all, we'll talk about the historical purpose. Isaiah was sent of God to warn Judah of the sins that led to Israel's downfall and to warn of the evil that would lead to their own. 
own. His message to Judah was twofold. God will bring condemnation on Israel and Judah through the nations that surround them. But then here's the not yet. Here's the the future. Here's the hope. But he will also one day provide salvation through Israel and Judah to the nations. So that's the historical purpose. The doctrinal purpose is the book comprehends all the great truths of the Old Testament regarding salvation from man's sin through the redemptive work of Christ and then the final glorious restoration of the earth. The full gamut of salvation is laid out in this book. And then there's the Christological purpose, the purpose of laying out about Christ. And Isaiah presents perhaps the most complete and comprehensive descriptions of Christ found in the Old Testament. He talks about his virgin birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his second coming are all depicted in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah writes from a perspective where he saw the dual aspect of Christ's coming And what he does sometimes in this book, in fact, we'll even see it tonight, is he lays it side by side, sometimes in the same paragraph. Like two mountain peaks, you know, where he's talking about the first coming of Christ, and then he's talking about the second coming of Christ, and it's all lumped together. And concerning those two mountain peaks, he lays out that Jesus comes to save by his suffering. And then he comes to reign and to conquer. And sometimes, like I said, those are in the same chapter. So he lays these out, these, both these comings of the Lord. He lays those out like two mountain peaks. What Isaiah didn't see, though, was this valley in the middle of those two mountain peaks that we call the church age, the age that we're living in right now. He didn't see that. He prophesied and probably didn't quite understand as he wrote about this suffering Messiah and then this reigning Messiah. And, and, and what he didn't see, though, what he didn't quite comprehend and wasn't laid out for him, that through the suffering would come a church and a church age and salvation and this valley, if you would, of, of this time period that, that is the time period that we're living in right now as we await the Lord's coming. So Isaiah lays those out. Now, last week, our focus, as I said, was on chapters 1 through 39. And there was lots of woes. Woes upon Israel, woes upon Judah, woes upon the other nations around them. And for 39 chapters, things look like it is outside tonight. Bleak, dark, and stormy. Thunder and darkness. In those 39 chapters with these little, like I said, glimmers of hope. But suddenly, as we get to chapter 40, there's this rainbow that shines to his readers of a blessing that is to come. The tone in chapters 40 through 66 changes dramatically. Chapters 40 through 66 divide into three sections, each having nine chapters. I'm going to lay this out for you tonight, and I think this will be a lot more palatable than last week for some of you. But we see, first of all, in chapters 40 through 48, the deliverance from God. And then the second section we'll deal with, chapters 49 through 53, is the deliverer from God. And then the third section, chapters 58 through 66, is the delivered of God. So the first section we want to talk about tonight is the deliverance from God. 
And in that deliverance, we're going to divide this up into three sections where we're going to see in chapters 40 through 42, the deliverance is proclaimed. Isaiah chapter 40 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. It is really classic. And immediately you'll notice a shift in the tone here. That we go from the woes to notice what he writes there in verse 1 and 2. Comfort. That's different, isn't it? (laughs) Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah 40 begins with a message of hope. Now is a time of hope and comfort for a downtrodden and contrite people. You know, God exemplifies for us here a great pattern in discipline great pattern here for parents to follow i want you to note this those of you who are parents especially those of you who have younger kids is that he brings discipline but he follows that discipline up with comfort that's really a good thing to do discipline without any comfort isn't good You know, once the child has been disciplined, the the parent, this is what God exemplifies, needs to come and and bring comfort. Let them know, hey, I love you. I care about you. Discipline without any comfort can be damaging, but comfort without any discipline can end up resulting in enablement. It can even be worse. So God, the Father, has a balanced approach. Now, the next thing that Isaiah announces here is a herald, a crier. Verse 3. This has significant New Testament implications. It tells us, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, all four gospel writers identify this voice as John the Baptist. As the forerunner who was who came to set the table, really, for the ministry of Jesus. John prepared people for the love and the forgiveness that Jesus was going to offer them. And John's goal, get this, was not to attract a crowd. His goal was not to win a following, but his goal was to point people to Jesus Christ. And you know what? That should be our mission as well. That should be our mission. In a sense, we are all forerunners of Jesus. Our goal here on this earth is to be those that are seeking to point people to our Savior, to Jesus Christ. You know, when the famous uh, conductor Bernstein was asked the question, what was the, the most difficult position to fill in the orchestra? He answered by saying this, second violin. No one wants to be second. No one wants to be second fiddle. You know what? All of us here are called to be second fiddle to God. We're all called to be second fiddle. Not to promote ourselves, but to point people to Jesus. 
John was that voice crying in the wilderness. What was that voice to proclaim? Notice verses 6 through 8. We see John's message laid out here in a nutshell. All flesh is as grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. He continues, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. The grass withers, the flower fades. Have you noticed how you can go out and spend... 30 bucks on a dozen roses. You bring them home, you give them to your wife, she's all excited, she puts them on the table, and they last for a couple days. And you literally watch your $30 just wither, you know, right in front of you. And it just kind of goes away there, just how quickly they shrivel up. How quickly they, they dry out. And this is what the Lord's saying here. The, the same thing he's saying. This is the same with human achievement and beauty and righteousness. It just shrivels up. It's only the word of God that remains forever. And this is something that the Lord really, really constantly, I think, is seeking to remind us of. Is the temporalness of our lives. And the eternal nature of who he is, and his word. We're temporal, man. Life is but a vapor. Our years here are are short. But his word endures forever. I love the story. You've heard it before. Of the French philosopher, he was an atheist, Voltaire, who there in 1778 on his deathbed said that Christianity would die out in a 100 years. In a 100 years, it would be gone. 50 years, though, after his death, the Geneva Bible Society had bought his house and was using it as a distribution center to take the word of God all over Europe. Tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor, you know? I love that. Voltaire going off and I'm going to use your house, man, to distribute the Bible all over Europe. I love it. So great. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, give us that example I was talking about of those two mountain peaks. Notice, verse 10, he says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. And behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. And then verse 11, And he will feed his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Here we see that dual aspect of the Lord's coming in these two verses. In verse 10, he's this strong, conquering, ruling king. And in verse 11, he's this tender shepherd. The rest of chapter 40 lays out the Messiah's grandeur. It talks about how he holds the oceans in the cup of his hand and measures the heavens with the width of his fingers. But I want you to note a little side note in verse 22. It has some interesting historical and scientific implications here. The Lord says that he sits above, there in verse 22, the circle of the earth. He sits above the circle of the earth. And what's so significant about that? Well, this is 2,000 years before Columbus discovered the new world. Two, you know, everybody thought, you know, his boat was going to sail off the end of the earth because they thought it was flat. And he comes back and says, guess what? The earth is round. Well, the Bible, if they just had read, God said way back then that it was a circle. God created 
the earth. And he knew. And he lays it out. Gives these little hints. It's awesome how he does that. Verse 26 tells us that God numbers and names the billions and billions of stars. Those of you who, who like to study astronomy and study the stars and the galaxies, it's a trip when you think about God, all the billions and billions of stars. God has a name for them. Can't wait to get to heaven and find out what, you know, his creativeness and in, in the naming of these things. But, but it's interesting that Isaiah mentions this because the point is this. He, he, that's why Isaiah asks the question in verse 27. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? So here's what was going on. The Jews complained that God was unaware of their situation. God doesn't know what's going on with us. Now, remember at the time that the Jews would be reading this letter from Isaiah, they would have been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And they would be reading this really 150 years after Isaiah wrote it. And he writes and he prophesies that Babylon is going to come down and he's going to, and Babylon's going to take over Judah. And he does it. He writes that at a time where Babylon wasn't even a blip on the map. The Assyrians were in power at that time. But Isaiah writes and says, the Babylonians are going to carry you off the same way the Assyrians carried off the, the northern tribes of Israel. They're like, the Babylonians, who are those guys? You know, it's like, they're, they're nothing. You're, Isaiah, he's crazy. And then here, 150 years later, now they're in captivity and they're reading this. And Isaiah writes this to comfort them. His point is this, if God numbers the stars, he's surely aware of our needs and will come through with the aid that we need. And you know what? I think that's a word from the Lord for some of you here tonight. God says that you are more valuable to him than anything else that he's created. He numbers and names the stars. You better believe it, that he knows what's going on with you and he loves you. Isaiah continues... He says, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable and he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint think about this what a comfort this would be to this group of people who eventually were going to be released and they would travel some of them a remnant would go back they would travel 900 miles back to jerusalem and what a a word of comfort this would be to them that if they waited on the lord that he would renew their strength you know, that's a great promise to us as well. It's how we really learn to soar. It's a great promise that he lays out here. You know, it's been said the Christian really ought to be like a rechargeable battery. 
Just always being recharged by the Lord. When we run low, that we come to Him and we seek Him and we, you know, in a sense, get plugged in to the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 5, being continually, constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And what Isaiah tells us here is that the way to plug into the power is to wait on God. Now, oftentimes... When we think about waiting on the Lord, we picture this. I'm sitting, I'm kind of twiddling my thumbs, I'm just praying real hard, and I'm not doing anything, I'm just going to wait here for hours. And we wait and wait and wait. And, and really, I think that that is what we might call waiting for the Lord. Waiting on the Lord, I think, is different. I think the picture that, that really ought to come into our mind is that of of a, a waiter, you know, in a restaurant. What is he doing? Is he just kind of kicking back and waiting for you to go, hey, come here, you know, I need some water. Yeah, lousy waiters are, you know, that way. But no, he's there to serve. He's there to, to, to see, okay, what are, what are the needs and, and, and that type of thing. I think that's a great picture of, of waiting on the Lord. And I think that involves worship. I think it involves prayer. But my point is this, is it's active. It's active. It's seeking after the Lord. And as we do that, he'll give you energy. He'll give you elevation. He'll give you endurance. Notice what Isaiah says here about when we wait on the Lord, we gain new strength. Those who wait on the Lord, he says, shall renew their strength. Our strength is renewed and the Lord meets our weakness with his strength. We also, second, we gain a better perspective. Because the passage goes on to talk about how we'll mount up with wings like eagles. And think about this. The eagle, he soars. He flies. So he's soaring there. He's seeing things. He's flying above the normal terrain. And he sees things from a higher vantage point. Eagles can spot a fish from way above. Down there in the, the ocean, when we wait upon or, or, or on the lake, and when we wait upon the Lord, we, have, we gain a higher heavenly perspective of the things that we're dealing with. Third, we gain extra energy that we can run spiritually and not get tired as God supplies us in our time of need with extra energy. And fourth, we gain extra ability to persevere. We're going to run and not be weary. We're going to walk and not faint. We're going to keep on just going for it. You know, it's interesting. I think some of us last Saturday night kind of experienced this as we gathered together for our Salem meeting and just were in that time of just worship and prayer and seeking the Lord. And and I know myself and several of the people just kind of made mention in, in their prayers that they just felt so revived. That's what happens when we do that, waiting on the Lord in that way. Now, chapter 41, we see the deliverance further proclaimed as God taunts the foreign gods of the other nations. And I want you just to note real quick in verse 8 that he refers there to Abraham as his friend. What a great thing. Abraham was called the friend of God. Why? Because Abraham, by faith, believed in the promise of God. He believed what God said to him. And God said, you know what, Abraham, because you believe you are my friend. And Jesus would say to his disciples, and the application there also is to us, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. That friendship is through our faith in him. 
Chapter 42, we see the ultimate deliverance will be through a person, Jesus the Messiah. Let's read beginning in verse 1. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will cry out, or excuse me, he will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flask he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth, and he will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Verse 3 here of Isaiah 42 is quoted in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flask he will not quench. And what this is telling us here is this is how Jesus treats people. The bruised reed, it's talking about the reed that would grow down by the river bank, and it would be the wind would blow, and it would cause those to, to kind of bend over and just kind of be torqued by the wind and, and, and the storms. And, and rather, what it's telling us here about the Lord's heart is, is when that, that reed that has been beaten down rather than, than focus on what's lost, Jesus comes along and seeks to restore that which is left. That Jesus comes along and he props up the person who's been beaten down by life. He's a splint. He's a crutch. You've heard that before. Oh, Jesus, he's a crutch. You know, I tell people, he's not a crutch. He's a, he's a hospital, man. He's the whole deal, you know, that he heals and he works and he restores. The smoking flask is like the wick on a candle that, and he says he doesn't blow it out. He doesn't quench it. But he ignites it. He fans the flame. He doesn't put out the fire. He further ignites the fire. Much of the rest of chapter 42 speaks of Jesus, that he's a light to the Gentiles in verse 6, that he'll open the blind eyes in verse 7, that he does new things in verse 9. And then in verse 10, it tells us, because of that, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. So the first half of chapter 42 speaks of Jesus' first coming, and the last half speaks of his second coming. Now, in chapters 43 through 35, the second part, we see the deliverance is promised here. And in verses 1 and 2, we see the deliverance is promised through trials. We sang about this tonight. I love the songs that Corey picked. It says there in verses 1 and 2, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters... When you pass through the waters, I am with you. And the key to this is that God doesn't promise that we're going to sail over the waters, but neither does he say that we're going to go under. What he says is you're going to go through. I'm going to bring you through. What that tells us is that trials are inescapable. Most of you know that. Yeah, we want to say, oh, no, I don't want trials. You know what James says? Anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And then he starts saying, but when you do that, you're going to get trials and you're going to see the wisdom that's going to come from what you're going to learn from those. 
But the Lord, he brings us through those trials, but he, he promises to give us what we need to get through. Notice how he continues in verse 2. I will be with you through the rivers. They will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. The last half of that verse reminds me of Daniel chapter 3. Remember the three Hebrew guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fiery furnace? It's interesting because the ropes were burned off, but they weren't touched at all by the flames. Their clothes didn't even singe. It's amazing. God does that. No matter the trial, the Lord promises to get you through. And I want you, if you're going through a trial night, lay hold of this. The promise that he makes here to Israel. In verses 5 and 6, the Lord promises to bring his people back to their land. Notice he says, I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up into the south. Do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now this is very significant. Because at, after World War II and the Holocaust... European Jews flocked to Israel from the West. And once the Jewish state was formed, Jews came from the East, from the Arab nations. And then early in the 1980s, the Jews came from Ethiopia, actually were airlifted from uh, the South there in Ethiopia. And then in the 1990s, Russian Jews streamed into Israel from the North. So this prophecy has actually been fulfilled in our own generation. Jehovah God of Israel also makes a statement in chapter 44, verse 6, that has some important ramifications. Notice what he says. Chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. I am the first and the last. Now understand this, that there is only one first and only one last. But what's interesting about this is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, it uses this exact same terminology in reference to Jesus. I am the first and I am the last. Check it out later. Now that means that there is either a contradiction... Or Jesus and Jehovah are one in the same. So what that means is that this is a proof text of the triune God. And this is a great passage to bring up when a Jehovah witness comes to your door and you're talking to them and they have, you know, their Bibles that are heretical, that they've changed things. Like in John 1, 1, where it says in the beginning, or excuse me, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and they, they substitute a God. You can take them to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, read this and say, okay, who is this talking about? And they'll say, Jehovah. Then take them to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. It says the same thing. Say, who is this talking about? And they can't refute it because it's clearly depicting their Jesus. Another interesting thing to note in chapter 44 is that in Isaiah chapter 44, the true God promises to rebuild Jerusalem and its temple. And in chapter 44, verse 28, and, and chapter 45, verse 1, God refers to, by name, this king that is going to come from the east, who is going to liberate the Jews from Babylon. He's going to be from the Medo-Persian Empire. And this is what's radical, is God 
calls him by name. He names him, calls him Cyrus. What's radical about this is this Persian king would not be born for another hundred years. He wasn't going to be born for another hundred years and the fall of Babylon wouldn't happen for another 160 years. So God just pulls out of, you know, in a sense, just, you know, the way he sees things is in the now. He pulls us out and says, oh, yeah, and by the way, there's a king that's going to come. His name's going to be Cyrus and he's going to free the people and help them build their temple. Now, what's radical about this is Josephus tells us that when Cyrus came in and the uh, Medo-Persian Empire overthrew the the Babylonians, that Daniel actually showed him this passage, and he was so amazed by it that he initiated the freeing of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and begin the rebuilding of their temple, and he financed most of it. He financed a great deal of it. It's an amazing, amazing prophecy. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 6 explains the purpose behind this astonishing prophecy. The Lord says that they may know from the rising of the sun until its setting that there is none besides me, that I am the Lord and there is no other. Prophecy is the key, guys. You know, there are 25 books out there today that claim to be scripture. You know what separates the Bible from all of them? Prophecy. That God predicted things that would happen that took place. That there are 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. 2,000 of them that have already been fulfilled. Prophecy is what separates. And it reveals God's eternal nature. Now, chapters 46 through 48, the deliverance is prophesied. God says in chapter 46, verse 10, turn there. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. You and I, we have a timeline. You and I, the words past and future are meaningful to us. What this is telling us, though, is that God lives outside of time altogether. And he demonstrates that to us by declaring, by prophesying these events that would happen before they did. We see an example of that in chapters 47 and 48. God prophesies of the judgment that would come upon Babylon. And it wasn't even a power yet. It wasn't even in power yet when when Isaiah writes this. But also he talks there in those chapters about how Babylon would be used to purify Judah. They're told in verse 10. Notice there in chapter 48, verse 10, he says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. There in chapter 48, what God is saying that the the Babylonian captivity would be used to purify the Jews. There are 70 years of being captives in Babylon. That Babylon was the idol capital of the world, that would be used to convince the Jews, after 70 years, idols are a bad thing. And when they went back to Judah, although they did get involved in other sins, they never again got involved in idolatry. Trials, 
be used to purify us. The judgment that God brings on the world in the last days, that the Bible calls the great tribulation, there's a twofold purpose of it. It will punish the wicked, those who have rejected Christ, but it's also going to be used to purify the Jews. It's then again that we're going to see that the Jewish nation will pass through the, the fires of affliction. Now we come to the second part, chapters 49 through 53, the deliverer from God. We see in chapters 49 through 53, his calling. Turn over uh, to chapter 49. I want to read verses 1 through 6. He says, listen, O coastlands to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he shall he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I have glorified. And then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Chapter 49 opens with the Messiah describing his preparation, that he was given a special name before he was born, that he was like a polished shaft and and this sleek arrow, and that God would, would use him to regather Jacob. And of course, and he also would be this light to the Gentiles. And Jesus did the latter. He was a light to the Gentiles in his first coming. And he'll regather. He'll be Israel at his second. And so Isaiah continues. We find his calling here is to suffer. And here's one of those Old Testament peaks that he lays out in chapter 50. Isaiah tells how Israel suffers because it turned its back on God. But in contrast to that, God's other servant, the Messiah, suffers to carry out the will of God. Look at verse 6. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. And I did not hide my face from shame and spinning. Here he gives some details of the crucifixion that isn't mentioned in the Gospels. Not only was his back beaten to ribbons, but his beard was pulled out. But even when Jesus was on the cross, through his scars, you could see this resolve in his face. Verse 7 says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. There on the cross, he was just dead set. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, turn over there, takes it one step further where it says that his visage was so marred, more more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. 
Now, Hebrew scholar Kiel translates verse 14 in this way, that he was so disfigured, his appearance was not human. Beaten so greatly that you couldn't even tell that it was a man who was hanging there. Martin Luther wrote, if you want to understand the Christian message, you must start with the wounds of Christ. And there in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, and on through chapter 3, 53, we have what is known as the suffering servant. And we spent about five or six weeks going through this incredible passage that lays out for us in just a tremendous way what Jesus went through on the cross. And Isaiah just explains it in such incredible detail. Now, here's a question. Why did Isaiah write about the crucifixion in such detail? And in the gospel accounts, sometimes we read where it just simply says, and Jesus was crucified. Or that they nailed him to the cross. And there's, there's not a whole lot of explanation at all about what you know, he really went through. And in Psalm chapter 22, we have you know, the emotional side of what he went through. In Isaiah chapter 52, uh, verses 13 through chapter 53, we, we have a great glimpse into the physical aspect. I think the reason is this. Isaiah was writing about crucifixion 300 years. He was describing it in detail 300 years before it was even invented by the Persians. 300 years beforehand, he's, he's writing in detail about what crucifixion look like by the time jesus comes along in the gospels and the romans have taken uh, crucifixion now and they have perfected it as a as a way to kill people there's been thirty thousand jews that have already been crucified so everybody knew what crucifixion was like they, they they'd seen it they'd lived it I mean, it would be like us. There wouldn't be any need to, to describe the gory details of how somebody dies from being hung. We've all seen that, at least in the movies, right? You know? Or we wouldn't you know, need to describe the gory details of what happens when somebody's shot and how the, you know, the bullet and the speed and how it you know, p- penetrates through the skin. And, and we would have to, we, we've seen that. We know what that's like. Isaiah was writing 300 years before the crucifixion as a form of death was even invented. Now, so chapters 49 through 53 lay out his calling, which was to suffer. Chapters 54 and 55 are his comfort. And before we go further, let me just kind of put chapters 54 through 66 in this context. Chapter 53 is kind of like a huge rock that gets tossed into a lake. And what happens when you throw a rock into a lake? Well, there's, there's the circular ripples, right, that, that kind of go out from it. The larger the rock, the further out the ripples go. Well, chapters 54 through 66 are the ripples that emanate from the rock of chapter 53. 
My point is this, is that the cross of Jesus has far-reaching ramifications. Not only did Jesus die on the cross to pardon our sins, but the cross pays for the restoration of planet Earth and even the new heaven and the new earth that would come later. In Isaiah chapter 53, we, we, we cry at the cross, but in chapter 54, we're told to dry our eyes and to wet our lips and to sing. That the Messiah's suffering is a reason for our singing. Notice what he writes there. Chapter 53, 4, verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and lengthen your stay. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Here's the, the, the result of the cross. It results in fruitfulness. It results in life. It results in the barren places giving birth. And then in chapter 55, we have a great invitation. For the Lord says, Ho, Rocky, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. That tells us that the blessings of God cannot be purchased with physical things. But the Lord throws out this invitation. He talks about, here's what my son's going to do, and he's going to die. And so those of you who have been going out and spending all your money on things, trying to satisfy you, no satisfaction is in him. So come, God gives this invitation. And then in verses 8 and 9, we see this incredible observation he makes about the word. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts in your thoughts and there we just see the greatness and the bigness of god and i i hope for you know for me the fact that i don't completely understand god doesn't frustrate me one bit it excites me man it excites me that my god that his ways and his thoughts are higher than mine that excites me because when i'm going through you know difficult things and i don't have a clue of what's going on i know that he does I think we should never forget that we are kindergartners in the university of God. And he's so greater than us, but he does just allow us to know him and to draw near to him. That we can take comfort in tonight in the fact that what's over our head is under his feet. In the same way that the waves that were crashing over the boat of the disciples were under the feet of Jesus as he walked out to them on the water. In chapters 56 and 57, we see his cry. In chapter 56, we talked about this on Sunday. He lets us know that there's going to be room for Gentiles in the future kingdom of God. In verse 7, he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And then we come to the last section, chapters 58 through 66, where here we see the delivered of God. In chapters 58 and 59, we see the condition of their deliverance. Isaiah chapter 58 uncovers Judah's hypocrisy. 
That they were became hypocritical and they, they, they were just kind of going through the motions in their religious things. And, and, and he calls them to get back to basics and honoring the Sabbath and taking care of the poor. But I want you to notice how chapter 59 ends. Look at verse 20. Isaiah 59, 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. And as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon them and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants, descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forever. But notice the condition. They've got to repent. When they turn, God says, this is what I am going to do. And the same thing holds true with us. We have to repent. We have to turn from our sin. So we see there in those two chapters the condition of their deliverance. In chapters 60 through 65, we see the completeness of their deliverance. Isaiah, Isaiah 60 is a chapter that deals with hope. It's a call of God's people to put off their complacency. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In the world's darkest day, God will raise up Israel as this beacon, as this light. Now here in these last seven chapters, Isaiah takes us to the opposite mountain peak now. We, in, in chapters uh, 49 through 53, he takes us to the peak that deals with the suffering Messiah. In these chapters, he takes us to the peak that deals with the conquering Messiah who's going to come and set up his earthly kingdom. And he lays out for us in these chapters some incredible things about the millennium, how the lion lays down with the lamb, how children grow to be, uh, or live to be a hundred he lays out these incredible insights into the kingdom age that we don't have. And, you know, a lot of people think that in, in the kingdom age is laid out for us you know, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, it tells us about how Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years. But it's really in these prophetic books like this that it talks to us about what's going to be happening in that kingdom age. But I want you just to know one quick thing here, and then we're going to be done. Notice, oh, here it is, chapter 66, turn there. Chapter 66, verse 8, it says, Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Here Isaiah looks to the future rebirth of the, the nation of Israel. Remember, AD 70, the Romans came in, they were dispersed, and they ceased to be a nation for 1,900 years. Isaiah writes, like 600 years before that, about the fact that they would be reborn. 2,600 years or 2,500 years before it actually would happen. He describes that momentous occasion when the nation of Israel was born in a single day. The United Nations voted to partition Palestine and make room for a Jewish state, and the nation was born May 14, 1948. It was a miracle. 
It was a radical thing. Without a war, without a coup, nothing. Isaiah said, without labor pains, the nation of Israel would be birthed. It's never, ever happened before in the history of humanity that a group of people that had been dispersed and were no longer a nation for 1900 years were reborn. But her most glorious days are still ahead. And I want to just finish off by reading the last part of chapter 66 tonight. Let's look at verse 20. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord. Out of all the nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. That you are a God that can be trusted. That your word is true. That it remains. That it endures forever. And God we thank you so much for just the radical way that you put it together. To touch our hearts. To bless us. To reveal to us Lord your plan. And God, I pray tonight that for those who are in the midst of the storm, that they would be comforted, that they would know, God, that you are with them, that you will uphold them. And Lord, we just lay hold of these promises that we've looked at tonight. And God, we look forward to that day when your son is going to come and he'll set up his kingdom. We thank you, God, that you've made a way through his suffering that we can be a part of that kingdom. So be glorified, God in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.